You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We have been occupied trying to tease out the meaning of this expression that is very familiar to us. But when examined and looked at up close, we wonder at the the depth of its meaning. I'm specifically thinking of John's identification of Jesus as God's Lamb. We considered some of the proposals, suggestions that have been made for construing the impact and the meaning of this expression people calling attention to the fact that something very similar to this is said of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Secondly, others bethink themselves of the fact that the Lamb of God does powerfully call to mind the Paschal Lamb, so perhaps that's the way we should interpret the expression. Then we went on to see that Jeremiah at one point speaks of himself as a lamb, as a sheep undergoing a serious threat, about to be slaughtered, but innocently. And of course that would connect very easily with Christ, his total innocence, put to death not for any crime, but for completely trumped up charges. So that would be a possibility, construing Jesus as a lamb in that sense. Then we went on to see that in Exodus provision is made, actually um, law is laid down, that each day at the temple two lambs that would be sacrificed, one at daybreak and one later on in the day, in behalf of the people, for the welfare of God's people. And, of course, immediately we're prone to think of how that links up with Christ, because his death was for all humanity in the interests of the human race that he was sacrificed. So that remains a distinct possibility. But now also... We want to look at still another reference to lambs that we find in the Old Testament. Here, once again, in Leviticus, this is Leviticus 4.32, the reference is to the sin offering. And here's the way it's given. If it is a lamb that he would bring as his offering for sin, he must bring a perfect female. He must lay his hand on the head of the sin offering victim and slaughter it as a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering victims are slaughtered, whereupon the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings, while all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. And so on it goes. But here, what strikes us as a bridge between this and Christ is the fact that Jesus' sacrifice could very well be defined, and in fact is so spoken of, and Luke particularly, as achieving the forgiveness of sin. Hence, we think of this sacrifice and this lamb that worked in that direction to remit a person's sin. Well, still another possibility, and that's found in Genesis 22.8. It's the familiar account of the attempted sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham. And there we find something that really suggests what we have in hand here, the Lamb of God. I'm going to read this passage. Unfortunately, when 
people come and encounter these words here in Genesis 22, it's a problem that confronts them. And the problem is, would God ever be so brutal as to ask this kind of a sacrifice of a human being, of a father, that he slaughter his only son? Well, the answer to that is very easily and quickly given, no. And this is not that at all. This is a question of a test of Abraham's faith. Throughout Genesis, Abraham is presented as a profoundly faithful man. That carries over into our liturgy where to this day we speak of Abraham as our father in faith. And that's what's at issue here, that the point that we are to take from this account is simply this, that there is nothing but nothing that God could ever ask Abraham that he would not deliver, that he would not accede to. So with that background, we look at what is really a very delightful account here, especially in its details. Sometime after this, God put Abraham to the test. Abraham, he said to him, Here I am, he said. Take your son, God said, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and there offer him as a burnt offering on one of the hills, which I shall designate to you. So next morning Abraham rose early, and harnessing his ass, he took two of his servants with him and his son Isaac, and having cut wood for the burnt offering, he started off for the sanctuary, which God had designated to him. On the third day, when Abraham raised his eyes, he saw the sanctuary in the distance. So Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the ass, while I and the boy go yonder to perform our devotions, after which we shall return to you. Now, there I take the occasion to point out the irony in what is here said. Abraham does not want to terrorize, terrify his attendants, his slaves, by saying, I'm just going up there to kill my son. So he lies. He thinks he's lying, but in fact, this is exactly the way the scenario will play out. Eventually, after having worshipped God, Abraham and his son will return to these people. When Abraham says this, he doesn't think that's going to happen, but in fact it does. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on the back of his son Isaac while he carried in his own hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them went off together. Father, said Isaac to his father Abraham. Yes, my son, he responded. Here are the fire and the wood, he said, but where is the sheep for a burnt offering? And now comes another delightful bit of irony. Abraham responds to his son, God will provide himself with the sheep for a burnt offering, my son, said Abraham. In fact, little thinking that that would happen. But he can't say to his son, no, I'm going to kill you. You are the sacrifice. But indeed, this is just the way it works out, that God provides a substitute for the son Isaac. Thereupon, the two of them proceeded on their way together. When they arrived at the sanctuary which God had designated to him, Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood, and binding his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. But notice how this is a critical moment now. As Abraham put out his hand to grasp the knife to slay his son, 
the angel of the Lord called to him from the heavens. Just at that precise, critical moment. Not five minutes before, not while he was tying the boy up, but right as he takes up the dagger to plunge it into the child. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay hands on the boy, he said. Do nothing of the sort to him, for I know now that you revere God in that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. When Abraham raised his eyes, he saw behind him a ram caught in the brushwood by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. Then Abraham called the name of that sanctuary Yahweh Jirah, which is today interpreted as at the hill of the Lord provision is made. All right, so the possibilities of linking this up with what we're concerned with in John's Gospel, I think, are clear. The analogy is very strong. First of all, we could think of Jesus as that ram, ram, lamb, sheep, for our purposes, we'll consider them all the same. But this ram caught in the brushwood substitutes for Isaac, just as Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, substitutes for us, for the human race, which, because of its sinning, deserves that kind of penalty. But in its place, there is Jesus, the Lamb of God. So that's also a possibility, a possible application, a possible understanding of Lamb of God, as John employs the term. Before letting go of that, though, let me point out to you Harking back very briefly to that incident we've just looked at in the story of Abraham, there's a, a twofold application there that the Christians early on recognized. Not only the parallel of the ram being the stand-in for Isaac as Jesus is the stand-in for us, but also a parallel between God and Abraham. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son God was willing to sacrifice his son. The difference being that Abraham does not end up having to sacrifice his son, but God does. And from the earliest period onward, Christians were aware of this sort of satisfaction in pondering this. All right, so there we have laid out before us all the possibilities for plumbing the depths of meaning in that expression used by John the Baptist of Christ, Lamb of God could be the lamb spoken of in Isaiah, could possibly be the paschal lamb, could be the lamb of Jeremiah, innocent going to its slaughter, the lamb of Exodus, sacrificed in behalf and for the welfare of the people at large, as is the case with the sacrifice of the cross. The lamb of Leviticus dies for the remission of the offerer's sin, just as Christ dies for our sins. And lastly, the ram caught in the brushwood as suggesting Christ substituting for us. He undergoes the penalty that we deserve for our sinning. Well, which of these are we to choose as being the key to unlock the meaning of Lamb of God? I'm going to suggest that every single one of these helps for us to catch the richness of meaning in that expression on John's lips.
there is God's Lamb. There are suggestions of every one of these biblical Old Testament references that we've looked at, glints of each one of these in that expression in the mouth of John the Baptist. All right, so we set that aside and go on now to another thing that John says right after that. He says, he existed before me about Jesus. Here, I touched on this earlier. John is implying something we all, I think, subscribe to, that priority implies superiority. The first ones on the scene are those who have the advantage of everyone else, just as the Mayflower settlers have it in prestige over everyone else. Now these people are experiencing John the Baptist first, but he has to say to them, though I am first in your experience now, Jesus pre-exists me, and so that principle remains in place. Priority declares superiority, implies superiority, and Jesus is prior. Now we come to something that people stumble over and wonder at, but really no need for that. He says of Jesus, John the Baptist does, I did not know him. Well, elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, we are made to understand, or at least by implication, that John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus, because Mary and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, are related in that way. And here John is saying, I did not know him. Well, there are various ways of explaining that. One way is simply to point to the fact that John the Baptist very early on left the family to go off and lead his heretical life there in the desert, preaching to all that was serious about religion and baptizing them in his fashion, so that he grew up, so to speak, apart from the family, not involved in family gatherings. Add to the fact that the families did live quite a distance, one from the other. John the Baptist was, we believe, raised in a small town, Ayan Karim, a bit to the southwest of Jerusalem. Jesus lived up in Nazareth, a good distance away, up in Galilee, so that it isn't a question of living next door to one another so that John the Baptist would have recognized Jesus immediately as having grown up with him all along. No, that wouldn't be the case. So there are two considerations in all of this. But the third, I think, is the one that's operative here that explains why John might say this. In saying, I did not know him, he would be meaning, I did not know him in that capacity as Messiah. Well, I would have known him well enough as a cousin but I didn't know this about him. In much the same way that we could be surprised in life, some person whom we've met as a registrar or a principal of a school, and that's been our only relationship with this person, but we find out down the line that in fact this person is a very accomplished concert pianist. And we could say, I never knew that. I felt I, I knew this person perfectly well, very, very well, but I never knew this about him. Well, I think that more or less does justice to the piece that we've just examined, and it's time now to push onward to see what follows in the text. So, we're here in the first chapter, once again, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he passed, he said, Look, there is God's Lamb. The two disciples heard him say this, 
and they followed Jesus. But Jesus turned and seeing them following him said, What do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, that is to say, Master, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the rest of the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. All right. Now, what strikes us here is that you have the beginning of discipleship, discipleship of people, of men to Jesus. This is the first instance reported in this gospel account, in any case, of anybody coming to be with Jesus, to learn from him as their master. And I'd like to point out, too, the logical progression here we have in the way this is being reported to us. On the first day, you'll recall, John the Baptist is canceling himself out, taking himself out of consideration as being Messiah. He is not the Messiah. So he's cleared the decks for action. So we know who the Messiah is not. The second day, we find out who he is. Look, there is God's Lamb. It is, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth. And now, the third day, very logically, people act on that. There there are certain things that come to our attention that demand action. If someone should come into the room that you sit in to say, the building's on fire, you can't dawdle over that. You are compelled to do something about that. It's that kind of a situation that forces you to take action. And you have something like that here. If indeed this is the Messiah, as John is identifying Jesus, then these men should indeed break off from John the Baptist and go to be with Jesus. And they do just that. Now we're going to see from this point onward, these disciples begin to form up around Jesus. We're going to see a regular progression beyond this point. But here is the start of it, at least according to this gospel. So... Jesus' question to them is important. What do you want? An understandable question in those circumstances. But perhaps we ought to see more in it than that. In saying, what do you want? The community from which this gospel was created and for which it was created, for them, the question in their minds is understood in this way. What are you looking for? How do you explain the restlessness in your life? What are you after? In other words, deeper than would appear from the text. And the reply of these people, of the two disciples, ought to be construed at the same depth as well. It's not really to say, you know, what is your address on what street do you live on? But it really is an expression of a desire to be with God and to enjoy the strength and the comfort and security that God represents. There are intimations of that at deeper levels in this questioning and these answers that are given here. Well, so they went and saw where he was staying. Now, what is very important for us is to fix on that word rabbi. Rabbi is the word for teacher. It has this etymology It's from the Hebrew word for great, and it means the great one. But it was used only of a teacher and only of a teacher of the scriptures. So basically and technically that is what rabbi means. Teacher, i.e. teacher of scripture. 
elsewhere in the Gospels, Mary's lips, we hear Jesus addressed as Rabboni. That is a form of rabbi and a form of endearment using that concept. So that's the etymology of the word, but what interests us is that this is the word that is used to address Jesus by these two incipient disciples of his. But it lets us in on their thinking. This is the way they estimate Jesus at this point. This is the way they identify him. In their minds, that's who Jesus is, a rabbi, a student and a teacher of the scriptures. Now, it's important to keep that in the background of our thinking here because subsequently they're going to revise their understanding of Jesus, as you'll see, toward understanding Jesus as being infinitely more than a rabbi. But at this stage, this is what they think of him. He is a rabbi. All right, so we'll keep that in reserve. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and followed Jesus. Andrew immediately sought out his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. He took him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, that is, Peter, which means rock. So now here we see Andrew taking action on this. He comes to this insight into Jesus. And uh, the first thing he has, it's very, very touching when you think of it. His first thought is, my brother, he should know about this. This is like the discovery of a treasure. And you want to share it with those who are near and dear to you. And so he bethinks himself of Peter. He should tell Peter about this, their discovery of Jesus. So Andrew immediately sought out his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, that is to say the Christ. Well now, at that point, I would like you to take up what we had to say about Jesus as a rabbi. You see, initially, Andrew understood Jesus to be that, a rabbi, and nothing more. A great rabbi, perhaps, but nothing more than that. But now, his understanding of Jesus has taken a quantum leap. Now he understands Jesus to be not just merely a rabbi, but indeed the Messiah. We're going to notice in this particular part of the gospel this as a regular occurrence, namely that a person will come to be with Jesus, start up as a disciple of his, be with him for a time, and in that time his understanding of Jesus will take on great depth and substance. In the fourth chapter, where we read about Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman, this process, this interior process, is right there on the page for us to trace. We see this woman, in the course of her discourse with Jesus, constantly revise upward her understanding of Jesus. At first she thinks of him as just another Jewish man. Then she seems to understand that here is a Jewish man of some depth, of some attainment, because she now addresses him very respectfully as sir. Then at a certain point in their conversation, she says, I see that you are a prophet. So that has upped her level of understanding considerably. And finally, 
She leaves her jug there by the well to run back to the village to say to her townsfolk, I have found a man who told me everything I've ever done. Do you suppose that he is the Messiah? So that is some distance to travel in estimating the identity of Jesus. But it's part of the pattern. It's an instance of that pattern that we're seeing in this part of the gospel. And that perhaps the author of the gospel is suggesting should the story of every Christian constant growth in knowledge, in depth of knowledge, depth of understanding of Jesus. But here we have an absolutely glowing instance of that. Andrew going from his assessment of Jesus as rabbi to his understanding of Jesus as Messiah. All right. He took him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, that is Peter, which means rock. Now, you'll recall that in Matthew's gospel, in this instance, Jesus goes on to say, on this rock I will build my church. Matthew is very church-minded and would not want to leave anything like that out because it speaks volumes about the character of the church founded by Jesus on Peter. John is more concerned here, though, to speak of and to imply Jesus's, you might say, x-ray vision. John likes to project Jesus exactly in that way as looking at someone and seeing right into him, into the meaning that that person has. And that's what happens here. Jesus sees that Simon is rock And when we check in Matthew, we find out rock in just what sense, in being the foundation of the church. There is, we want to point out in the original, a play on words that does not come out in English. See, in effect, Jesus is saying, you are rocking on this rock, I will build my church. But due to the character of language, it doesn't work out in English. It comes pretty close in French. You could conceivably, in French, put it something like this to a Pierre, a surset Pierre, I will build my church. There, the play on words is quite obvious. All right, we're in verse 43 now. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he sought out Philip and said to him, Come with me. Now, Philip came from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip sought out Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law, and about whom the prophets wrote. It is Jesus, the son of Joseph, who comes from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Here is really an Israelite without any deceit in him. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, while you were still under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Master, you are the Son of God, you are King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe in me because I told you that I had seen you under that fig tree? You will see greater things than that. And he said to him, I tell you, You will see heaven opened 
and God's angels going up and coming down upon the Son of Man. Now, right off we want to comment on Philip's name. It's Greek, and yet he counts as one of the disciples. Sometimes we have a stronger and unwarranted sense of the separation of Israel from the rest of the world, so to say, and even from its neighbor, neighboring countries. No, there was a very strong Greek influence, especially in the north of the country, in Galilee. That, in fact, explains the name Galilee. The Hebrew is Galil HaGoyim, meaning the ring of the Gentiles, so named because mixed in with the Jewish population in the north was a considerable non-Jewish, Greek-speaking population. And I suppose we could take the occasion to explain that that would account for the reason why Galileans were sort of made sport of and maybe not too well thought of because they were thought to be, as it were, contaminated Jews, contaminated by Gentile usages and customs. Well, you could see that the Greek influence up there in the north would have had some impact on the population because here's Philip, a Jew from a Jewish family, but bearing a Greek name. Well, he says, come with me, Jesus says to him. Now Philip came from Bethesda, Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip sought out Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law and about whom the prophets wrote. Now, here's the thing that we have to note here. This is a recurrence of the situation that I spoke of a moment ago. Namely, here is Philip, having been with Jesus a short while, but is able to identify him as the one spoken of in the Law and the Prophets. That's a big jump. What is the significance of that description of Jesus, the one spoken of the Law and the Prophets? Well, possibly it is a way of saying the one spoken of in the Scriptures as we would say, the one spoken of, indicated in the Old Testament. You see, the Jews back then, and indeed right up to the present, think of the Old Testament as tripartite, the law, the prophets, and the writings, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So that what Philip is doing here, possibly, is using a shorthand, speaking of the two big segments of Scripture, the law and the prophets, to characterize the whole, saying, you know, that figure that looms large in the scriptures, in the law, the writings, and the prophets, the Messiah, this is the one I want to tell you about. Now, the thing, too, to bear in mind, as I alerted you earlier, here Philip has been with Jesus a short time, and he's achieved this insight into him. In other words, people upon meeting Jesus do not keep static their understanding of him, their appreciation of him, but it grows, and it surely has in Philip. He was just summoned from the roadside, so to say, and he's been with Jesus a while and is now able to identify him in this very, very profound way. And interesting to note his instinct in coming upon this incredible find the Jesus, the Messiah, his thought is to go to Nathaniel, his friend, and share the good news with him. 
Nathaniel is not credulous at all. You can't put anything over on him. So he's very dubious, especially when Philip identifies Jesus as coming from Nazareth. And Nathaniel is prompted to say, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? This takes up something that I mentioned a moment ago, and that is that Galilee was not well thought of. And Nazareth was a town in Galilee, one of the principal towns in Galilee. Almost, you might say, the summation of all that Galilee stood for in the way of subject to foreign influence, not all that close to what goes on the seat of action, which is Jerusalem. Also, the fact that Galilee, Nazareth, was so far removed from Jerusalem, inevitably would work out this way, that since the people up there would get down to the temple infrequently, they wouldn't be that practiced, that well-versed in the liturgy of the temple, and this served to make them scapegoats and to be criticized. So all that is contained in the scornful dismissal that Nathaniel makes in these words, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, it's interesting, elsewhere, throughout this gospel even, Jesus meets with doubt and rejection, and there the judgment is much stronger. Not here. Eventually, of course, the thing is that eventually Nathaniel, so to speak, saves himself by coming around to a better state of mind. At least he's open to being convinced. But elsewhere, it's sort of a hardened doubt and dismissal of Jesus that you find later on in the gospel. But here with Nathaniel, it's just talk from the top of his head dubious about anything originating in Galilee, most especially in Nazareth. But after all, he is willing enough to make the effort because when he's told, come and see, an invitation to faith, he does just that. I should mention here that in this gospel, the expression to come to Jesus is equivalent to saying, believe in Jesus. Seeing Jesus has the same import. So they're virtually synonyms for belief. And in saying, come and see, Philip is really saying to Nathaniel, believe, believe me, believe this is the case. Now, Jesus, encountering Nathaniel, is prompted to say, here is an Israelite without guile. There's much in that remark. What Jesus is ever so subtly suggesting is the first Israelite. In fact, the man whose name was changed to Israel, Jacob. Jacob had this unique experience on one occasion. I'm going to read that passage in a moment in Genesis. And Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, and all his descendants then are called Israelites. And now... Nathaniel is referred to as an Israelite. That, by the way, also bears out what I had said earlier, that the word Jew did not function in this gospel to characterize someone whom normally we would speak of as a Jew, a member of the Jewish race. The preference would be in this gospel to refer to such a person as an Israelite. But let's go back to look at the origins, the background of this remark. In Genesis 32:28, Genesis 
That same night, he, that is Jacob, rose and taking his two wives, his two female slaves, and his eleven children, he sent them across the fort of the Jabbok, a stream that runs in the eastern part of Palestine. He took them and sent them across the stream and sent everything that belonged to him across. Jacob himself was left behind all alone. So what is stressed here is that Jacob is completely free of all distraction, even the very legitimate concerns that he would have had on any day, the welfare of his family and of his possessions, all that is put aside to give him just the opportunity to focus very sharply on what was to befall him now in a moment. So Jacob himself was left behind all alone. Then the man came and wrestled with him until daybreak, and when he found that he could not master him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Already now there's an indication that Jacob has that he's not just been wrestling with another man, but there's something much more significant at issue here. What is your name? he said to him. Jacob, he replied. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, wrestler with God, because you have wrestled with God and man and have been the victor. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, face of God. For, said he, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Okay, so here's the point. Jacob was granted this experience of a direct encounter with God. Jacob, and you see his name gets changed to Israel, one who sees God, one who has seen God. Now you see what we're so prompted to think of here in this case of Nathaniel being called an Israelite. Whom is he looking at at the moment? He's looking at Jesus, you see, and is called Israel, an Israelite, just as Jacob was called an Israelite because he had looked on God. Here is Nathaniel looking on Jesus. So I think very legitimately we may think of this as an innuendo that is strongly suggesting the divinity of Jesus. But Jesus also says of Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well, the reference there is to Jacob's deceit. Jacob was not the most virtuous of persons. You remember he managed to steal the birthright from his brother Esau. He did that by guile. And Jesus says of this Israelite, this Israel, namely Nathaniel, there is no guile in him, as indeed there was in Jacob who did his brother Esau in. I'd like to go back just momentarily to that little text from Genesis where it is recounted Jacob's meeting with God. At the end, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. What a strange thing to say, as if there was something deadly about God. Well, the awe of the Hebrews, their awe of God was such that they seemed to fear that the very greatness, the bigness, the power of God would overwhelm them. And so that was a worry. Don't get too close to God. It could be dangerous. But I think we have, I like to think of it as kind of an analogy in the sun. There's nothing more blessed in our lives and more necessary 
than the sun. But if you look directly into the sun, you will go blind. It's very brilliant. It's blinding. And yet we need it to see. Also, if you got too close to the sun, you are consumed by it. So something that's quintessentially good for us, but its very greatness could be devastating. And that seemed to be the fear that the Hebrews had. Well, in any case, to come back here now to Nathaniel. Nathaniel said to him after this exchange, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, while you were still under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, Master, you are the Son of God. You are King of Israel. Well, that's quite a turnabout now, isn't it? Here is Nathaniel, who starts out by wondering, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now acknowledging Jesus, hailing him in these words, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. But you see, it is another one of those instances that I had brought to your attention earlier. Namely, you are with Jesus for a while, and all the while your understanding of him is increasing in depth and richness. And no clearer instance of that than here in the case of Nathaniel. He certainly has grown in his understanding of Jesus in this short while. Well, Jesus answered, Do you believe in me because I told you that I'd seen you under that fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He said to him, I tell you, you will see heaven and opened and God's angels going up and coming down upon the Son of Man. What we want to note here is something that's kind of a deficiency in the English language. All along, the dialogue has been between Nathaniel and Jesus. And the word you, as it turns up at that point, is singular. You, Nathaniel, you, Jesus, so on. You, Master. But here, when Jesus says, I tell you, you will see greater things than that. He is using the plural in the original Greek, you, singular, has a different form from you, plural. And here it's you, plural. And the only way we can express that is by that strange expression that they have in the South, is I tell you all. I tell all of you. In other words, whereas up until now, the dialogue has been between Jesus and Nathaniel, now the dialogue is between Jesus and several other people, Nathaniel included. One thing that we want to note is that Jesus is pointing us forward to what will evolve in the story of Jesus. Up until now, it's been the words that Jesus spoke that have caught the interest and won the belief of these disciples. But now there are going to be things that can be observed signs, as this gospel will refer to them, that will convince people or make them understand the true and rich identity of Jesus. It will not be just a matter of words now, it's going to be deeds as well. But I think this is a point at which we'll stop and resume right from here in the next session. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.